Now we don't have any value. Hello. Hello. Langdon. Yes, Eden. If there was a Vancian spell named after you, so like Langdon's something, what what would that spell be? Everyone's going to think it's going to be something about the penis. Good guess, yes. but wrong. Um, uh, it would be Langdon's infinite spear. Infinite, and that's not about the penis. No, no. I, I mean, it's there's obviously some symbolic resonance penile, there. I'm not going to lie. Penile resonance. Penile resonance. Yeah, I'm not. I, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to lie. But you know, we're we're beyond the second wave of feminism. We don't just look at a tower and see a penis. We we do mm-hmm. see a penis. It is there, but it's not yes. the only thing. In this case, it's also a killing implement. Right. Like the penis. That's right. If used correctly. That's right. Like uh, would... like the noble dust mite. Exactly. I would say that it would be Langdon's <clears throat> summon well woman or something like that. I like that. The idea of summoning yeah. a well woman. Which is a woman in a well. Just to be clear, you're not summoning the actual well. You're summoning yeah. just the woman in the well. Yeah, like whatever woman would be in a well is now out of the well and near you. Yes, and and she is invisible discomfort because she's not in the well. Yeah, she's like, I'm way drier than I normally am. Don't like that. Where are my rocks? Yeah. What would yours I be? Think, yeah, I think it would be maybe Eden's flight anxiety. Like it's a curse, it's a hex. I, I, I cast it on you and then you're suddenly anxious about going on flights. Um, it's not very effective, but like you still have to go on the flight. Like you're not going to not go on the flight. You're just going to not enjoy it. Yes. You're going to be incredibly anxious and it's going to, you know, the day, the weeks before will be ruined by the anxiety. And someone will be like, you know, planes are like really safe. And you're like, I know that that's why I'm calling it anxiety. Like, yeah. No, and also like you, you, you'll suddenly have this compulsion to say it's not about that. It's not about safety. It's just the the the, the experience of this location. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. But you you don't actually want to say these things. But that's the spell. The spell is taking over you and causing you to say those things. I think mine might also be Langdon's spider brain. <clears throat> that's a good one. So that's, that's a, a, a unique event. If you've ever read anything by like uh, Grant Morrison or um. Mm. Or uh, you know, you know, Alan Moore or the like. Um, I would say that they're great practitioners of the spider brain. I'm not the first person, obviously, but you know, you get a little bit of uh it shocks people when I tell them that I've only done psychedelics twice in my entire life. <laughs> You're um on a tour, baby. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm just I'm like this naturally. I did love speed. Loved speed. And that will fuck your brain. Um <laughs> Yeah. But so, yeah, and it just accelerate you to infinity until you have the fractured spider consciousness. Yes. By the way, before we do the actual episode, you all should read Grant Morrison's Nameless. Yes. Um, as soon as you can. That one was fantastic. Uh, someone from Twitter actually sent me their copy, um, which was insanely sweet of them. That they just like. Nice, yes. Uh, yeah, they, they read it and went, this is one of the most new things I've ever read. And I was like, I love Grant Morrison. I just haven't picked this up yet. So they mailed it to me. Um, so I have it in hardback now because of that, which. 
Yeah. Very it's goddamn limited. sweet. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, technically, that's not a digression because we're about to talk about um, a person and a genre and an aesthetic that pretty much influences every single work of not even just fantasy, right, but also science fiction and literature in general that you could possibly consume today. I mean, not every single one, right, but vast majority of of any works done in those spaces, because it is finally time to talk about Vancian literature. We have name-dropped this uh, genre uh, many times in the previous episodes, and now it's finally time to tackle it head-on. So this is going to be a different episode. There's no specific book we're going to discuss, and there aren't going to be two parts. We'll just play music at the end, but we are going to talk about a phenomenon, right, um, instead of a specific work. So before that, let's talk about Jack Vance, the person, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, Unfortunately, there was a person called Jack Vance. He was born in 1916, which maybe tells you a lot of what you need to know about what comes next. Um, And he died in 2013. And he was an author of not just fantasy and science fiction, but also mystery. And he was very, very prolific. Definitely of his era, right? The golden age of science fiction, you know, started from all those... um, uh, fantasy and science fiction magazines like Satellite and Dangerous Visions and all that stuff. Had a and huge also- element of pulp in his work um, that gradually yes. got weaned out over time, but um, it got weaned out more by being uh, deeply incorporated and mining out the literary aspect of it. But he, he never shied away from the like sword and sorcery um, vibe right. of especially early um early fantasy. He was one of the figures who is seen as like one of the first great redeemers of that style. A hundred percent. And also one of the first uh, people to uh, fuse those influences into creating the subgenre of science fantasy. Right. So this idea that science fiction doesn't have to be this um, very technical and very cerebral sort of style of writing, but it can incorporate elements from fantasy like the mythos, um, epic elements, the the hero's journey, and uh, stuff like that. And to be clear, he was an incredibly talented author. I think he created some of the best science fiction and fantasy books to ever be written. For example, the Lioness uh, trilogy, Empherio, which is really underread and incredible, Nightlamp, which is latter, it's in the 90s, but it's still very good, and, of course, The Dying Earth, um, which is an incredibly sprawling and prolific series of science fantasy that spun off an entire subgenre called Dying Earth. Now, if this seems familiar to you, it's because we covered the Book of the New Sun, which is the other big work inside of the Dying Earth subgenre. Uh, so when you state, like, the masterpieces of the Dying Earth genre, you will often um, cite... Vance and Wolf. Of course, there are earlier examples. By the way, one of them written by one of the most interesting people that no one talks about, Camille Flamiron, who was an early uh, French astronomer and writer of science fiction from the 19th century. And he also wrote kind of like a proto-dying Earth uh, work called The End of the World, Le Fin du Monde. Really interesting guy. Um, You all know him, by the way, because 
you know that engraving with the guy sticking his head outside of the sphere of existence and looking at the stars? That's called the Flamiron engraving because Camille Flamiron was the one to reproduce it, even though its source is probably in 15th century Germany. Sorry, I really like this guy. and <laughs> I like talking about him. I've never um, heard of him before now, which I find fucking insane. So, so we could do like a whole episode <clears throat> on this guy because he like was a bona fide serious astronomer with some really um, seminal discoveries under his wing. Also, by the way, his wife was even better than him, Gabrielle Flamiron. Um, she actually has a crater named after her and an asteroid. She was very important in, uh, and so was he in the research of Mars and early perceptions um, and uh, observations through telescopes. But he also wrote, you know, this is the 19th century, right? So science, spiritism, what's called mesmerism, seances, <laughs> stuff like that, were all um, mixing together because, you know, science and magic are the same thing. We'll talk about that further down the line. Um, and he also wrote a lot of science fiction, including a really, really weird book about meeting a giant blue guy on the moon. That sounds uh, so fucking tight. Yeah. He's, <laughs> so, it's, it's actually well written. Um, okay, well, but going back so, to Vance. So uh, one, one, one quick aside. Yeah, one it. thing that, um, that Eden and I have been trying to explore over this past, all of last season and then also some of this one, we've been dancing around the topic of early science fiction. We've sort of rift yeah. on like ideas of talking about different elements of it but the same general vibe is that um obviously we both feel uh, a tremendous love for fantasy and science fiction um gareth does as well but also a tremendous frustration with how it is in many circles become this very tight box to the yeah. point where certain works that uh, are much more keeping in the broader traditions of of both worlds get read as like these outsider works that are doing this insane progressive stuff when it's like one. Okay. Yeah. They're good works. I'm glad that you're, you're, you're praising them in certain circles, but on the other hand, it's like, no, these actually like this kind of wild experimentalism has been part and parcel with the entire space literally since it's done. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, Jesus Christ, we need to do an episode on that guy. That sounds amazing. Yeah. He's, he's really interesting. So going back to Vance, of course, Vance did not invent the genre. There were predecessors, just like we discussed. H.G. Uh, Wells is often cited. And most importantly, um, Clark Ashton Smith, who wrote the Zotique series, which happened on Zotique. And Vance was heavily influenced by him. But Vance was the one who uh, popularized and gave the genre its name by literally um, naming his first short story collection, The Dying Earth. Other examples to follow after Vance are manifold, and we're actually going to talk about how it sort of spell, uh, spilled out of, of literature. But you have Arthur C. Clarke's The City in the Stars, Paul Anderson's Epilogue, M. John Harrison's Viriconium, one of the best series of books ever published, Michael Moorcock's The Dancers at the End of Time, George R. R. Martin did Dying Earth, Philip Jose Farmer, of course, Gene Wolfe that we already cited, Alan Moore, Greg Bear, um, Hidetaka Miyazaki, by the way, is listed uh, um, as a dying of genre, and we'll talk about that today, but also in a dedicated, um, dedicated episode in the future, and more and more. One small problem, <laughs> if you're familiar <laughs> with the, the golden age of science fiction, you probably know what I'm about to say, and also we spoke about this on the cast before, Jack Vance was a horrible racist and a misogynist. <laughs> now, we don't really have quotes of him saying, I am a racist. 
um, non-white people are inferior to white people. But if you read the books, it is extremely hard to overlook these facts. In general, the dying earth genre, just like we covered with Wolf, suffers from this emphasis on evolutionary development of humans, right? Because if you go to an earth that is a million years in the future, let's say, it is very tempting to start to talk about how humanity evolves and changes itself and so on. And from there, it's just a really short step to eugenics and racism and stuff like that, a step which most of these people were more than happy to take um, and were probably already very close to anyway. In addition, Vance uses rape a lot, Oh, as a plot yeah. device. Like, remember oh, when yeah. we did we did Book of the New Sun, and there's the scene where Severian rapes Jolenta and so on. But it's um, it's it's off screen. It's very vague, and it's also bad. We talked about why it's bad. It's a million times worse with Vance. In many of his stories, women are decoration. They're just foil for the male um, hero figure. In some stories, that's not the case. He does have like quote unquote powerful female protagonists, but that's why insistence on those is really limited because it covers up more pernicious forms of sexism. Um, but rape is, is a common plot device, and so is in general just the subjugation um, of women, right? So it really is important that we say that outright because it will also help us to look at how the genre has advanced since then. Okay, last part of the intro, what is Dying Earth, right? What is this subgenre and by what is it characterized? <clears throat> so first off, the, the, the main requirement is that your story is set at the twilight of life on Earth, right? It is in the far, far, far future. I mean, some of these books, like Paul Anderson's epilogue, are about the death of the sun, just like the book of the new sun, right? Um, but in general, it can be at the end of time, in like a more metaphysical, weird sort of way, like Moorcox dances at the end of time. But in general, um, it has to be set in the far future when the Earth is in decline. And that's very important because the themes that are required is a sort of world weariness. Everything has been worn down. Everything is at its end. Everything is lethargic and coming to a close. Um, some sort of idealism or innocence, that is the people that populate the planet are depicted as children playing with toys far beyond their ken or lost in some way and of course entropy right um the dissolution of things the end of things the um depletion of resources and how everything falls apart with in some cases like in wolf's case hope of renewal right always bubbling beneath the surface now, if you're starting to ask yourself, well, I know a bunch of stuff that fits this um, definition is not necessarily a literary work, you're starting to get the uh, theme of this episode, um, which is to explore the impact of the dying earth on non-literary genres and, and compare between them and literary genres. Dying earth has been incredibly influential um, outside of the realms of literature. For example... One could make the case that Halo is a dying Earth story, right? Um, humanity is at its edge. Um, the world, the ring world on which the game is hap happening is dying. Um, humanity, our, our children playing with toys that are much 
too powerful for them, and but there's hope of a savior, right, and, and of renewal. Um, uh, Breath of the Wild, um, the most recent Zelda game, is probably yeah. one of the more prominent. Um, <laughs> one of the more prominent uh, big asterisk. We're covering the other one in an entire episode um, <laughs> of, from from recent video games, where it's the exact same theme, where you find these massive engines of war, this you know phenomenal technology, but the entire Earth is run down, bedraggled by monsters on the edge of, you know, some kind of primordial darkness or scientific darkness. It's not, um, that's sort of the other, um, the other element that comes up in these where the, the limits of humanity have reached such a point that when they discover old technology, you get read as a sorcerer for using, you know, like an iPad or a gun. Um, and, you know, similar things happen obviously within, uh, I mean, obviously, it doesn't have quite the same effect within Zelda, because you look at it, and as a player, you're like, oh, that's laser, neat. Um, but the intent is certainly there, of, like, this is ancient lost technology that reads as though someone is firing a magic spell at you with, like, a fucking yeah. wand. Right, so that's actually a, g- a really mm. good point, because Dying Earth is only one of Jack <laughs> Vance's influences. The other one, which is tightly interwoven mm-hmm. into the Dying Elf, but is not a requirement for something to be a Dying Elf, is the Vancian magic system. Now, if any of you listen to Acid Horizons, a podcast, a really good podcast, by the way, uh, mostly about Deleuze, but also about other things. I said the name, Langdon. I said the go. name. I said the name. Um, it's anyway, the death sentence episode. Yes. Um, <laughs> they, host, they hosted me on the, like, series of episodes called Inner Experiences where they talk about the occult and magic and stuff like that. And we spoke about high magic versus magic realism. Go listen to that. I won't uh, bore you too much. But I also brought up uh, Vancean fantasy of Vancean magic in there. So what is Vancean magic? We'll see it in some of our examples and some of them we won't. And in some of them we might argue whether they're Vancean or not because it's not really a tight definition. So in the works by Jack Vance and most especially in Mazirian the Magnificent. Is that what it's called? The Eyes of the Overworld. It has a bunch of names because Vance didn't like the original name. Um, a lot of it is about wizards. And those wizards are depicted in a way which to people who today are familiar with fantasy seems cliche. But it's because Jack Vance made it the cliche. Right? Of course, alongside Tolkien and others. But the idea of um, memory slots that is an amount of spells that you can memorize at any given time and are then when you cast them you forget them and have to relearn them Vance popularized that or even invented it I think the concept of magical reagents that are required for the casting of certain spells and they are exotic and how to come by Vance popularized that the idea of spells being named after their castles, like the joke intro we did. So, for example, Tensil's Floating Disc or Bigby's Crushing Hand. Um, Vance popularized that. It, like, those literally are names of spells in his works. Like They follow, they follow that format. Um, and in, in general, the idea of the wizard as this, you know, uh, power-hungry, domineering, <clears throat> and isolated character who manipulates the environment with their spells is very much a Vancean popularization. Now, most famously, 
Vancian magic has lived on in the form of Dungeons and Dragons. Right when I cited Tensil's Floating Disc and Big Crushing Hand, those are spells from D and D, um, and D and D has Vancian systems of magic, for good and for bad. Um, but that has been one of the um, largest popularizations of Vancian magic, and whenever so, so now the net expands. Right, any work <clears throat> that you saw well someone talks about spell slots or names a spell um, or does any of that stuff it is immediately tied to Jack Vance. Again, which is unfortunate because he was a horrible person. But uh, that's, that's where we're at. So I think our purpose with this episode is to explore these aesthetic definitions and these themes to understand how they play, interplay with each other, what they do to works. And also what interests me personally is the many different ways in, in which they can manifest and the many different kinds of stories which they can tell. Swag. Nice. So <laughs> let's start with Dungeons and Dragons. Right? I think that's like the big yeah, it, elephant in the room. It's like we, we can't really get to anything more interesting um, until yeah. we... <laughs> yeah. So that's actually a great segue to what I wanted to say. It's really interesting to me. So you can say a lot of things about Vance, right? But as I said in the intro, you can't really take away his skill. And part of his skill is his mind was crazy, dude. He was crazy. Yeah. Like his capacity for inventiveness is really unmatched. Like even if you read just Mazirian, which is the first <laughs> volume of The Dying Elf, you have like um, twin women where one her brain got fucked up when she was made in a vat and now she cannot see beauty anymore. Like beauty is ugliness. So the entire world is ugly and she sees like a beautiful butterfly and she hates it with a burning passion. You have a ring that like you pass all over your body and it, it makes you invisible, allows you to sidestep reality. You have a museum curator for the Museum of Humanity, cataloging like all the horrors of humanity and, and holding them at bay with his willpower. You have like um, daggers which fight for themselves and all sorts of weird cultures with the weird habits. It's just so prolific and inventive and overflowing. And yet Dungeons and Dragons managed to take that and put it on the most vanilla, boring, stripped back version of a fantasy setting you could ever imagine. And now all the fucking wizards of the coast stands are going to come into the comments and say, well, actually, D&D is setting agnostic. You can run it in any setting. Oh, except you don't, right? You run it in a Tolkien-esque, boring, vanilla setting all the time. Like, and also Forgotten Realms and Faerun, which, again, I grew up on, right? Like, I played Baldur's Gate and all that shit, and I ran campaigns in Faerun until I was 15, right? And then I read another book, um, and I realized that it was boring as fuck. So it's yeah. Really I've, I've I've read every single Drist novel up to uh, I forget the name of the trilogy, the one that had the thousand orcs as the first one. Um, yeah, in the war with yeah. Le but, but like every single one. Um, I I have a slightly different read on uh, D and D than you. Uh, uh, big asterisk on that one. Um, only because. Some of your fundamental critiques there aren't wrong as much as it is 
and they say in the opening of of pretty much all of the books um, that these are intended, like with any kind of role-playing game, these aren't rules. These are suggestions. These are things they've worked out with playtesters that seem to be most efficient for carrying out certain things. But ultimately, play is made at the table by players. Now, this sort of runs into the big cultural problem of role-playing games in general that ironically fits a kind of um, Vancean mode in a, in a meta-narrative sense which is that when handed an engine of creativity, the first thing that some people will ask are, what are the rules? How am I supposed to use this? And the minute that you do that, you've started to undo the real magic of what you're looking at. Um, that's where it starts, you know, driving further and further down. So like, okay, we'll include some sample stat blocks so you can get a vibe for how to make out a character. And people go, okay, these are the stats for orcs. And you go, no, wait, no, that's not what I said. I said that that's it. And they're like, okay, good. How does magic work? They're like, well, here's a really interesting, and they're like, okay, that's how all of this works forever. Um, and the whole notion of the mutability of it gradually gets lost. So it's like, <laughs> it's one of those things where I have the same hang up that you mentioned as like, oh, well, it's setting agnostic, but then your your counter critique of like, yeah, but no one does that is yeah. resoundingly fucking true. Like yeah, so I've run into issues at the table when I go, why don't we just ignore some of these rules or ad hoc some kind of movement around them? To make sense. Well, this isn't a... TTLPG podcast, right? Um, but I think it's kind of naive to... I mean, we've all read Foucault, right? Yep. We've all read Baudrillard. <laughs> we, we, we live in a post-French philosophy world, right? We can no longer pretend that the rule system and the setting which it creates are separate, right? People don't arrive to uh, D&D as... Um, a tabula rasa, right? That's they arrive right. with this weight of culture mm -hmm. that D&D participates in and helps create and helps continue. Now, don't get me wrong. D&D is a good thing. It's a good game. I actually think the system is actually also good. It's like very non... It's not popular to say that, but I think the system is good for what it does. But I think it has... I think what interests me is how they were able to take something like Vancian fantasy, draw a line around Vancian magic, and then just take that and ignore the rest of the context in which Vancian magic takes place. So for so example, it, I'll give you an example. Go ahead. Oh, it, it builds out a kind of um, a classic structuralist problem, the thing that post-structuralists um, slaved so hard to try to undo, which is that um, obviously within literature, we don't quite have the, the perfect enmeshment of the language system of a work generating the inherent meaning of a work. The whole point of literature um, you can see this most keenly in poetry um, and in philosophy as well, but it obviously shows up in literature, is specifically to try to undermine that. It's like to try to find the weird liminal space between words where you can evoke a pure experience that cannot really be captured properly in language. Like the feeling of love is not captured in the word love. So you have to do these funny poetic motions in order to evoke this thing within the, the primacy of language. And a structural problem that arises in many, many uh, tabletop games, and odd, oddly enough, is a perfect mirror to the kind of cultural trap that he that, that Vance presents within the Dying Earth, um, and that Wolf explores, I think, a little bit more keenly 
that like uh the the derrida-esque notion of like we are trapped by the dead futures that or proliferate across the earth like these ruins of former dreams are the things that trap us and make us less free it's not yeah. it, it's a psychic thing that they do that it manifests within D in this funny way that you sort of mentioned in that they attempt to put down the semiotic rules of play and unless you have kind of a post-structuralist mind where you go semiotics itself is a game that you can play with it's not that you play within semiotics. It's that semiotics itself is a kind of game. If you don't have that insight, then what they put down auto-generates, like, like using a seed to make a Minecraft world, the exact same fantasy world repeated ad infinitum. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I very much agree with that point. And it goes back to, I mean, I think we could write an interesting article called D&D as Infrastructure. Right? It's, it's the infrastructure of, of, of storytelling. And of course, infrastructure affects the result and story. Okay, so, so now we've explored this, this example that is oddly conservative while using Vance's magic system. But if we're claiming that this is a bad way to do it, then we should be able to give a counterexample of a good way to do it. Luckily, we have one. It's called Adventure Time. So this was actually like a mind-blowing moment for me. Back in 2014, that was my bad year, right? <laughs> um, the gas leak year, if you want a community reference. Um, <laughs> I was playing Dark Souls 3. The, 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 the specter of FromSoft is haunting this conversation. Um, There's no way to avoid it. That's, that's why I, it's I, getting its own full episode. <laughs> yeah. So as I was playing Dark Souls 3, again, I was depressed. Um, I was watching Adventure Time. Uh, for the first time, quite quite late, but I was getting to it. And so something in my head went, wait, why, did, uh, why are these two things familiar to me? Like, why do they seem to resonate with each other? And then it suddenly hit me. By then, I had already read Dying, uh, Dying Earth and Book of the New Sun, stuff like that. I was like, wait, Adventure Time is a Vancean setting. It's a Dying Earth story. So let, let, let's cross off like the requirements. It's at the end of the world. Right. Uh, by the way, spoilers for Adventure Time. <laughs> if anybody's listening um, that hasn't watched Adventure Time, if all somehow the way. over the past, you know, yeah. two decades of the show being immensely popular. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Adventure Time's main meta plot, it, it becomes obvious in the later seasons, is literally the rebirth and death of the planet over and over again. Right. And this idea of the comet, which is an agent of change that keeps uh, uh, mixing things around. So all of the world that we see is actually a post-apocalyptic world from the last time that change happened, building towards the next change. That the is, last change not... happens to be our world, um, like yes. just the world that we live in. And the comet as manifested is initially presented as a nuclear war. They have, they later mess around with exactly what they mean by that. But it's... Yeah. They you have... Comet. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, check. Uh, the, the world is about to end. Um, two, there's hope for renewal, right? I mean, Finn himself ends up being this agent of renewal. And then in, in the very poignant last episodes, we get to see the next iteration, right? Um, after, you know, Finn's manifestation um, of, of that change. That's two. There's a world weariness. Um, things are falling apart at the seams. 
this is mostly seen in in Princess Bubblegum's story and the way that she sees the world as fallen from grace and um, you know uh, buried in its own history. Everyone is extremely naive and nonsensical and idealist. Not just Finn and Jake, but also the Candy Kingdom uh, and the other uh, kingdoms. And everybody is basically like living in the ruins of this incredibly advanced society and has magic and, and, and technology all around them, but are unable to use them. There's also, um, uh, he he quite literally has the Book of the New Sun in in Adventure. Yeah. The Enchiridion is is very literally the book that, um, uh, that Severian gets. Like, it's, it's to the point where the people who made this absolutely fucking knew what they were drawing from this this isn't incidental stuff this isn't us doing this wild read this is this is the construction of adventure time yeah so it becomes very obvious when you start to watch adventure time in this way that these the writers of adventure time read the book of the new sun read the dying earth and they are very much um playing with these tropes uh, specifically vancy and magic exists in Adventure time. Um, so there is they don't use the format of name and then the spell, but they do use the format where spells have specific names, right? Like when you cast Fireball, you're not casting a ball of fire. You're casting a thing called Fireball, reified as the spell of Fireball. It happens several times, mostly, of course, with the Wizard um, episodes and Wizard City, which is one of my favorite like sub-locations of Adventure Time. Um they have potions, which is Vancian, by the way, wands, and other uh, Vancian, um, you know, accoutrements and, and 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 stylings. Now, I don't know. Maybe I was late to the punch, and um, people have already noticed, and it's not such a big revelation. But when I realized this, like, I went back and started watching the series again, and I was like, "Holy shit, this makes a lot more sense now." But uh, I think this yeah, actually ahead. hits it an interesting thing that. One of the things that I like about how international our, uh, like we are at death sentence where I'm American, I was born and raised in America. I've, yeah. I left America once on a vacation to go to Mexico for about three hours. Um, not all that exciting. Gareth being British and having lived in Canada for a number of years and having a Canadian wife. And then you being Israeli. And I, I don't know. I know that you've traveled around. I don't know the yeah. fullness of it, but that we get these like completely different cultural windows on the same event because yeah. a lot of the stuff about adventure. Time, so I remember when the first adventure time um, short dropped, um, I was over the moon about it. Like, Those ninjas stole my diamond. I'm just, I was like, it felt, <laughs> it, it was one of the first times that I saw something, um, I was a late teen at that point, but I saw something like, holy shit, that's me on film. Most recently, by the way, plug for a thing I didn't even make. Everything, everywhere, all at once. The movie is like if I made a movie. It's so <laughs> fucking me on the screen. I felt it was uncanny. There's a point where I've been making Ratatouille jokes. There's a long running bit in it about Rakakuni, an alternate world where Ratatouille, R Ratatouille is a raccoon. <laughs> it's, it's, Fucking hysterical. Also, there's a oh, universe man. where they have hot dog finger hands that come mustard and, and ketchup. It's also a heart tugger <laughs> kung fu film. Yeah. Anyway, but it, it so witnessing that and then obviously a number of years later, the show starts up. Um, there was that big gap between the two. Um, but 
it was actually a big point of discussion, at least within like uh, American internet subculture of Pendleton Ward being a shockingly well-read, uh, who's the creator of Adventure Time, in case you don't know, you probably do, you're on the internet. Um, but he's a, the fact that he was a shockingly well-read individual when it came to like science fiction, fantasy, and even horror elements that he would play with, where people were like, oh, is that, to the point where people were building out a meta mythology of the show that only got confirmed later. Like people spotting the snail like yeah. Yeah. way before that became a whole thing. Look, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just adventure time snail, you'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> like, so at least within certain spaces of like American and somewhat like uh, British internet space, these elements were already being um, discussed. But it, I don't know. I, I always find that kind of fascinating that the exact same event being viewed from these different sure. cultural standings get uh -huh. these different. Um... So tying all this back together, think about the bursting creativity of Adventure Time. I just think about the sheer inventiveness of this show. I have a, right? I have a slight comment on that. Um, Go ahead. So this is in praise of the earlier seasons and slightly to detract from the later ones. If I, if I'm honest, my feelings about the later seasons are substantially more harsh than what I'm about to say, but I know that's personal taste is that one of the most intensely charming parts of the, the early number of seasons of adventure time is how boundlessly creative it felt. Yeah. Like you knew that there was a structure, you could feel it in your bones. Like this wasn't, it wasn't random shit happening, which wouldn't have been interesting. There was a logic to it, but it felt like dreamlike child logic building out in these fascinating ways in a way that like something like Axe Cop was quite literally child logic, but didn't feel good for, yeah. for obviously so children aren't good storytellers. Um, so, it, uh, and like you could feel out all of these like inner complexities, um, like boundlessly bursting out of the show. Like every episode wasn't one new idea; it was like eleven new ideas, and they all seemed to 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 both fit and not fit in that good way. Where like there was a gap between the things that just showed up and that had been before that you didn't quite understand, but that you knew there had to be some sort of interworking logic, and. Obviously, the frustration later is when it kind of D&D-ified itself and decided to have whole episodes explaining the gears between yeah. concepts. So, <laughs> so you're foreshadowing the end conclusion that I'm going to wrap this entire episode with, which is great. Excellent. Um, it's great. So, I'll dial back now. <laughs> no, all, all, all good. It's, it, it's amazing. Um, I think it's it really strikes to the point that I was going to say as well, which is... You, when you think about the the bountiful in, inventiveness of of Adventure Time, and I agree with you that it's the first few seasons. I just like the other seasons for what they are. Um, and you try to compare it with D and D. Uh, D and D falls immensely short. Whereas, if you try to compare it with the original work, that is with Vance's Dying Earth, you start to see the same sort of um, weird streak run through it and i think that streak is this idea that the writer understands the system nominally right there is a system at play 
things have a logic. But the thrill is that most of this logic is obscured to you, the reader or the viewer, right? And then slowly, more of this logic is revealed. But crucially, never all of it, right? So my uh, test for this used to be, and still is, if I were to teleport you to the setting, right? You wake up, you're in Feyrun, right? Or you wake up, you're in U, or you're on the dying elf. Would you be able, based on the knowledge, and let's say you have perfect recall, right? You're Severian, right? You have perfect recall. You remember the player's handbook, uh, cover to cover. You know all of the U mythology and all of the lore, and you've read all of Dying Earth, and you remember it all. And I put you inside these places. Can you cast a spell? Right? And if the answer is yes, then the setting went too far. Right? It, it went too far in explaining the logic and giving you the actual keys to what is inherently supposed to be something mysterious. And if the answer is no, but I want to be able to do that, then the series got it exactly right. Um, it left enough of the mystery for you to not actually understand it, but also revealed enough to entice you and to lead you down the road um, of discovery. And of course, the other, the third answer is no, and I don't want to because I, I don't have a grasp on it, which means that the series hasn't revealed enough. And that, that also happens. For example, George R. R. Martin. I yeah. think one of, his, <laughs> one of his greatest failures. Okay, so, wow. I don't want to go on a Song of Ice and Fire rant, but I really, really, really liked A Song of Ice and Fire. All five books. Yes, even Feast for Calls. I love those books. But my biggest disappointment i'm gonna put a flag in that one because i i have an interesting you keep going sure i mean what are you gonna do like um song of ice and fire is post-apocalyptic actually no no i mean to be fair that that theory's sort of been floated around for a while um yeah. but anyway like, uh, and i was just gonna say that i i remember being like like you neck deep into fantasy when those books were i think the third one had just been announced and i had just read all of the um the R.A. Salvatore stuff, like literally every book R.A. Salvatore had published and like all the Dragonlance shit and stuff like that. And I was like, I want to read yeah. fantasy, but that's good. And someone suggested, um, it's like, oh, Song of Ice and Fire, you know, uh, pick up a Game of Thrones, you know, that's the first book. I got about 200 pages in and I was like, oh, so it's like, what if all of this stuff was real and wouldn't it suck ass? Okay, this <laughs> book's how long? Yeah, so, I'm good. And I just like I put it down. But so that's exactly that's exactly my disappointment because I was strung along by George R. R. Martin, and maybe I bought I bought that promise and you didn't. That there is like non-real magic in the setting. Right? So it's you know, you have the the guy who resurrects himself, you have the woman who's birthing like a fire demon. And you have the, the Valerian steel and all that stuff. But most of all, what I wanted is for Sam to become a wizard. Right? It was so obvious that Martin was setting him on the path of like opening the door behind the Maestil's supposedly common wisdom and finding magic behind it. And then he didn't. <laughs> and then it was just like, no, these guys are just old. 
<laughs> they're, they're just old and they've read all the texts and then you know some liberal bullshit about how preserving knowledge is like magic blah 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 all that shit and I was so deeply disappointed because I was like what why it could have been so much more exciting if like magic actually existed and if like the resurrection was not a trick and the red the red priestess or however the fuck she's called it's been ages since I've read those books it wasn't wasn't just a, a, a charlatan, right? And maybe she, maybe she's not, but it's not it's not shown, it's not shown in the books. So he hinted at it, he played the game, but then it's just empty, and you're like, whatever. And Song of Ice and Fire is not the only example; there are many, many, many more. So I think that's the trick that Adventure Time pulls off, and so does Dying Earth, and by the way, so does Gene Wolfe, right? Showing you enough of the mystery to entice you, but not revealing too much that things are clear. So if we want to dig into the wolf example for a second, and I swear we'll keep this short because we spent enough time on the Book of the New Sun, I think one of the best examples for me is how many types of laser guns are in Book of the New Sun? <laughs> like, you could not give me a catalog. So if this was D&D, you'd have a catalog, right? And each one of them would have a bonus to hit and a to different damage die and uh, extra effects and stuff like that and it would cost more gold pieces or whatever but you can't do that with Book of the New Sun and yet it's not complete chaos you recognize that the gun that Vodolus uses yes we're talking about Vodolus again god I swore we wouldn't do this but the gun that Vodolus is using we can't escape using... it we did we, we Eden we did those episodes for a reason because you and I both know once you get yeah. deep into this shit once you get deep yeah. into this shit that shit's like the center of the universe yeah, it's next. It, uh, by the way, I ordered uh, the omnibus edition of the Book of the Long Sun. Nice. Um, so it's happening. Anyway, <laughs> gun and the guns fired on the north front and the wall are the same. They're, they're similar. But how and why and exactly how they function, you don't know, which is fucking awesome because it leaves place for speculation and imagination. This also hits at the one of the deep questions of um actually let me let me wind my own thought back a, a tick one of the big reasons that with book of the new sun we were able to pinball back and forth between me going like look it's christian again this is a story of the saints and you being like here's some crazy science fiction stuff buried within the fantasy stuff and oh now we're talking about a time loop and now this is actually you know about his weird conservative politics but like an auto critique not not a loop it's a call school look that's right that's right time time cork school so one of the benefits of that and this this is one of one of the many discussions that made us uh after finishing certain episodes go we have to talk about Vance. um <laughs> yeah this is that's indicative of why people consider Gene Wolfe to have used those Vancean influences well, because the usage of the mechanics of the setting, not just the setting itself, but the mechanics of it, the the way that magic works, the way that um, this Lovecraftian and also admittedly pre Lovecraftian weird fiction sense of the experience of magic, not magic itself, but also the experience of it mirrored with this Vancean mechanical approach to it opens up ultimately the reason why you put magic in a story, which is the door of mystery. This is all 
This yeah. is sort of like the guts of the occult. This is the guts of mystic traditions within traditional faiths. Like this is the guts of Sufism, of Kabbalah, of esoteric Christianity, uh, more monastic forms of Christianity as well. The guts of um, Buddhism and Hinduism are a bit more foregrounding with, also admittedly Islam as well, foreground this mystic path a bit more um, openly than most Abrahamic ones who tend to be a bit more cloistered. But this whole notion of you present this door of mystery and you are urged either through or away from it based on this sort of internal uh, barometric pressure, like a spiritual barometric pressure, but that you manifest that within a work. You don't just, this is also why Alan Moore is considered such a successful practitioner of this stuff. He's a bit more, he's a bit less opaque about what lies beyond that door and pathways to that door, but it still ultimately hinges around this this wheel and you then you it, it, this this is what's sort of preserved in in some of the earlier seasons of of adventure time as well where you have this like great mysterious wheel that the mystery is what urges you forward it's not there is something to be said about obviously the dying earth way of answering mystery with heartbreaking mechanics and this is this pulls back to George R. R. Martin. It's not necessarily a failure on his part that he goes, the answer behind the door of mystery is the classic Wizard of Oz thing is like, it just kind of shit. Yeah. Because that's sort of a classic dying earth, you know, uh, curtain reveal. But it, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to argue that he was as successful as, I mean, the reason why we, we keep referencing something like the Wizard of Oz with that kind of thing is because there is a level of profound heartbreak when you're like, wait, what? Um, yeah. That isn't quite preserved there. This also, to loop back to D&D real quick, one of the funniest things about its present versus its origin, and this sort of, for me, mirrors um, at least my personal experience with something like uh, something like Adventure Time and certain mysteries within A Song of Ice and Fire that got answered in ways that Obviously, I'm not, it would be bad criticism to say that the answer that the author decided is worse than the one I invented in my head, because you can literally do that for any given work. That's not really criticism. But on the same hand, you can't necessarily shake the feeling, is in first edition Dungeons and Dragons, some of the modules they had were fucking buck wild. It was like, yeah. you have the... um the castle amber which is both a reference to zelazny um and the books of amber and all that with you know order and chaos at war which was zelazny's riff on or not he was riffing at the same time on the same types of things that uh what is it um morcock was riffing on with the eternal champion um cuz they both got into zen around the same time uh but you also have like the Castle Amber with its weird future technology kind of sort of shows up in Book of the New Sun because um, it was written around the same time. You have like weird modules with like aliens and falling stars and like, yeah. and it gradually got like colonized by mechanical language until eventually it's like, oh, I'm not sure that that crazy idea could really work. Let's Let's go for something that fits a bit more within the, fits a bit more within, fits a bit more within, and then eventually you just look down and you're like, oh my god, you've killed it. All the magic is gone. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I still have one more topic and uh, franchise that I want to discuss, but while, 
while you were speaking, of course I was listening to you, but I also had this intrusive thought that I had to act upon. And that intrusive thought was, is there Book of the New Sun merch? And I found this. I have sent <laughs> you a link on Discord. Uh, dear listener, this is a t-shirt. The t-shirt is white. And all the t-shirt says is The Shadow of the Torturer by Gene Wolfe. I, I will own this t-shirt. This t-shirt gonna, shall be mine. I'm going to send this uh, to a couple of my friends. This is... <laughs> and now, in case you were thinking this is like... So in case you were thinking this is like a randomly generated scam, the guy, this is on uh, Redbubble, the description is surely the greatest science fantasy cycle ever written. So whoever made this show <laughs> knows exactly what they're talking about because they called it science fantasy. Um, wow. I am shook. Um, wow. That fucking that's fucking hysterical. I'm that is amazing. Okay, so let's use this as like that was a bookend. That was a pause before the last uh, topic of this episode. Oh wait, no, uh, I have a I have one more thing to toss under the pyre. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, the one I mean, that, so yeah, go ahead. So obviously, we've talked about one that's sort of um, I would describe D and D as a quite. Um, amorphous, complex, and oftentimes frustrating example of the legacy of Vance. Frustrating yeah. requiring good and bad. It's not frustrating if something just fucking sucks. It's sort of like how like Nazis aren't problematic, they're fascists. Like it's <laughs> problematic yeah. implies there's a mixture of things and right. it's it's frustrating that you know you can't get just the good. You have to work you have to do these processes to subtract the bad to get the good right. versus yeah. like, I think the Holocaust was good. You're like, that's horrible. Fuck you. Like there's, there's no. Who sides? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that one's a bit more complex. And then, you know, adventure time has obviously it's complexities, but it lands a lot more positively. Like the only frustration you can bring up is obviously as seasons go on, you can't be simply endlessly creative forever. Because at a certain point, the mysteries become a bit too loud and you kind of have to answer them. That's not really like that's that's it's the Simpsons problem. Like you can't be the first 10 seasons of the Simpsons forever. It's inevitable that now granted Adventure Time did not become later era Simpsons to itself. Um, yeah, they did, in fact, call it before that happened. Um, I mean, the, the latter day Simpsons is always done in Philadelphia. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> um God, what a good show. Um, yep. But unfortunately, <laughs> um, Vance has a complex um, a complex uh, legacy. And one of the things uh, that he has as a legacy that uh, extends a bit more into the um, hyperbolically awful uh, end and definitely inherits substantially more of his um, personal politics uh, would be the uh, the gore franchise mm. of books. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I can't I can't emphasize enough how fucking horrible these are. Like on a moral level, this is not a they're so bad they're good. This is like they're bad. This is like what if what if a fascist read and like an insane like 
homophobe and misogynist read Dying Earth and went, basically all the stereotypes we get, the, the libertarian stereotypes of notions of a dying earth, that you'd have rampant um, rape, racism, slavery, physical and sexual violence, that this would just dominate the planet, but that the strong dominating the weak in this manner is in fact good. This is what should be happening. Um, obviously, Adventure Time skews super far away from that. Um, yeah. Like, as far away as possible. And th thank God. <laughs> um, uh, Book of the New Sun plays a little bit more even-handed with that, and in ways that are as frustrating as they are satisfying, because it, it never really necessarily presents what's going on as good. So depending on the reader, you can at least walk away with, like, the complex emotions of like, well, that's horrible. And the gore absolutely plays no bones about it. It's like, yeah, it's set on a counter earth. The notion of an, a near identical copy of the earth on the opposite side of the sun. So we can never, ever see it because the sun will always be perfectly in the way um, where humans evolved, but they're in like the decayed state of like, what if, what if humanity from like the Hyborian age, like the, the age of Conan only slid downwards into more and more barbaric and oppressive structure. The difference being that the author of these books presents that entirely uncritically as good, that the dying of the earth and the sort of, I don't even want to say the Nietzschean strong prevailing over the week, because that's a really shallow yeah. read of Nietzsche. But like, yeah. what if you had a quite literalist read the same way that literally the Nazis did um, and imposed that. It's this sort of expresses the, the complex uh, legacy of someone like Vance. Like you can't merely, it, you can't merely uncritically go, these ideas are good. I'm glad that they were born because this actually illuminates a similar topic about like critical theory in general. So one of the largest groups that deploys Deleuzean notions of the body without organs, of uh, nomadism, of war machines, of things like uh, re-territorialization is the Israeli Defense Force. Quite, quite literally, their notions of urban warfare and cultural warfare against Palestinians yeah. are built around works from both Deleuze and Foucault. Now, obviously, and if also, Deleuze and Foucault... And also called Lionel Smith. Yeah. And it's like, if you if you were to ask these people, like, let's say you can resurrect them, show them what's going on and ask them. In fact, with some of them, they are not some of them, with all of them, they were alive during it and decried what they were witnessing. You get the sense from them that they're like, that's not what I would want my tools to be used for. But this is sort of a general problem that arises of the problem of the tool maker. This is also the problem of the gun in a certain way, is that once you make a tool, and release it into the world, you can't guarantee how it is to be used. And it can be used in any number of completely different ways. Like you can use a gun as a farming instrument if you want. It will not be good at it, but you could. Um, and this sort of, so I don't, I don't invoke gore to encourage people to read it, even ironically. It's like, they're just shit. If you haven't heard of them, that's good. That means the culture around science fiction and fantasy has done a good job going you should only become aware of this in certain ways because it it's it's only shitty. 
Like, it's yeah. not even lascivious and fun. It's just fucking gross. But to... it is unfortunately as much of an inheritor of elements of Vance as some of these other things, which paints the much more complex picture of Vance himself. So to quote Michael Moorcock, um, the goal novels should be placed on the top shelves of bookstores. I'm not for censorship, but I am for strategies which marginalize stuff that works to objectify women and suggests women enjoy being beaten. Yeah. Um, once again, reminder that Michael Moorcock is the goat. Um, <clears throat> he fucking rules. Yeah. Secondly, when I was about to interrupt you, when you started talking about Gore, I was going to say, I bet that whatever you bring up is exactly what I want to bring up because we are telepathically linked. That's right. Um, and it's true. I didn't want to bring specifically Gore, but I wanted to bring up the problem of the toolmaker and what we do with Dying Earth and how we can keep engaging with this topic in meaningful ways, despite the legacy which uh, Vance, but not only Vance, more importantly, has left us. And it actually ties into some thoughts that I have about how we react to problematic themes in metal. So the problem with how people react to stuff like fascism in black metal, but also conservatism in, in power and, and heavy metal and thrash and, and, and other uh, subgenres is that they think that, you know, maintaining purity is enough, right? Like if you just don't listen to the wrong uh, kinds of artists, then you're good. And while I understand that impulse, I think it misses a much more interesting question, which is you liked something that a fascist also liked. Why? The fact that you both were drawn to this piece of work is not bad. You're not bad because of it. It doesn't shine a bad light on you. It only uh, uh, says something which should be obvious, but isn't, or is rather obfuscated. There is something in common between you and the fascist. Okay? Now, this ties into the overall perception that people would like to have of racists and misogynists and Nazis and fascists in general, and that is that they are monsters, that they are aliens, they're not human. People want to understand them that way because then it divorces them entirely from themselves. Feeling like you have something in common with a fascist is icky. It's a bad feeling. You don't want to feel that way because you're not a fascist and you think it's abhorrent. But the fact is that these people are not alien. They are not non-human. They are people just like you. And in order for us to counter them and to fight stuff like fascism and sexism, misogyny and racism and all that stuff, we have to understand how a person just like us becomes a person like that. And one of the ways to understand that is to understand the appeal of music and art and, and literature and organizational structures and many other things to the parts in us that can then metastize and be corrupted into fascism. Power metal is a perfect example. If you enjoy power metal, you have some sort of um, draw to power. Power is alluring to you. Violence is alluring to you. The idea of the hero is alluring to you. These are all ideas which are also alluring for fascists. 
right? In, in, instead of just saying, okay, so tell me who the bad bands are and I'll stop listening to them, you should interrogate more carefully why you are drawn to power like a fascist is. What is in common in the ways in which you see these things? Now bringing it back to literature, this is the question that we need to ask about the dying earth genre and fancy and magic and fantasy in general. Why is it that when we write, we again as in humans, right? When we write dying earth literature, why is it so many times racist? Why is Gene Wolfe racist when he writes about the Asians in the dying earth genre? Why does gore exist in the dying earth genre? Why does Edgar Rice Burroughs and the, comp and, and, and the problematic stuff about Conan, why do those exist? Conan is arguably a dying earth setting, right? Hyperborea is a future version of the earth that is at the, at the edge of time. Why are themes of masculine dominance and uh, uh, female subservience and fascism and the right of might and this shallow Nietzschean reading, why are they there? Now, don't get me wrong, like, Conan is incredible, um, but it, it's also problematic. And, and I could keep going. Like the, the examples are, are really, really common. By the way, tying a knot on D&D, why is D&D race essentialist? And D&D is race essentialist. Um, I mean, Lovecraft also worked within this, uh, within this space. Um, and we know what, what he thought about uh, this stuff. Um, so why do these themes keep coming up? What is it about dying earth and Vancean science fantasy that draws people of these thoughts and these um, relationships with these concepts. Not just them, right? I mean, Michael Moorcock is an anarchist, a leftist anarchist, and he wrote Dying Elf. Adventure Time that we already cited. Um, Greg Bell, Rick Remander, who's also, I think he's a liberal, he also wrote a Dying Elf um, uh, a, a, a story. Arthur C. Clarke, who's anything but a conservative, right? He wrote The City in the Stars. But it doesn't change the fact that a lot of the people working in these spaces are immediately drawn to eugenics, racism, and misogyny. So what is it about um, the genre that draws these themes out? I don't have the answer, by the way. If you expect me to now say, and it's because blah, 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 blah. I don't know. It's a, it's a really complicated question. But I think as fans of the genre or people who interact with it. And I think both you and I could be, um, you know, described as super fans, right? Yeah. We, we have to come to terms with these ideas more than just, this is icky, I don't want to read this. As long as I don't, I'm fine. Um, we have to more deeply come to terms with it. And that's something that I think we've tried to do here on this episode as an intro, right? This is not enough, but it's an intro um, to start thinking about these things. And it's, it's, it's a notion that arises um, within dialectical space. So this is quite literally the purpose of dialectics. And this is referencing back to it. When we describe something as problematic, what we mean is that there is this mixture of either not necessarily good and bad. This is a really shallow way to read it, but things that are desirable and things that are undesirable. And we can have the same complex interrogation of why do we desire what we do and why do we find undesirable what, what we do. And then also work to go, once we've come to terms of there are some things that we desire that are in fact not good. There are some things we desire that are good. There are some things we don't desire that are bad and it's good that we don't desire them. There's things that we don't desire that 
in fact, would be better. We should desire them or learn how to desire them. Um, you then have to start deploying. And it's different circum circumstance by circumstance, person by person, culture by culture. These complex strategies to I, this is quite literally what critical engagement is. It isn't simply going. Um, this is bad, therefore I will throw it out or this is good, therefore I will keep it. Um, because that's exactly where you get the kinds of culturally poisonous stuff where um, something that you've uncritically accepted as good becomes bad under your eyes and you become poisoned by it, but because of your semiotic work, this sort of gets back at the same structuralist problem. The decision that it is good inherently makes you unable to spit out the poison. Um, um, this is a fancier way to build a, I don't really think that tankies as we are, as we talk about them actually exist, but there is something, there is a thing that that illuminates, which is people who uncritically take in something. And then because of that lack of critical distance, the lack of the critical process, the lack of the dialectical process, by not formulating certain key critiques of like, okay, I can overall appreciate this project, but these elements I have critique of. We could have handled them better. They could have, the process could have been done in a different, more efficacious, more compassionate manner. When you lack that, you eventually start building a machine that cannot support itself. And those contradictions will reveal themselves over time. And the unfortunate thing that we see within the world is it would be wonderful if the pure dialecticians amongst us were correct and contradiction causes collapse in a perfect way. Um, much like the, the, the wonderful Meshuggah album. Um, <laughs> but uh, which I the more the older I get, I'm like, what are they? Are they are they are they into dialectics? That would be so <laughs> sick. Meshuggah dialectics reveal when. Um but in many ways, their uh, their polymetric uh, modulations are, in fact, about the re the dialectical resolution of uh, the thesis and antithesis. I'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm being dumb. <laughs> but unfortunately, what we see within the world is these contradictions don't inherently fall apart. This is um, that you can loop back. To, to physics for this is that like obviously you have entropy but the other bit of the second law of thermodynamics is unless energy is added to a system you can you can keep these faulty machines running by perpetually repairing them in slight ways that's in fact the overall problem with something like capitalism that we've been in late stage capitalism which is more a term about the developments of capitalism rather than its proximity to its own death um for quite a while now, well over a hundred years, like it doesn't, it doesn't mean late stage in the sense that like in 10 years, it'll be gone. Uh, it means a later stage of development and we can retain our position there despite how brutal and awful it is by the continuing adding of energy to this system, the slight reformism that allows it to perpetuate itself. Um, it's, it, that task of resolving these contradictions within ourselves, of looking at what Eden was saying, looking at these things that we find desirable and knowing that that human desire is shared by other people that we find quite repugnant. This is a substantially more complex uh, and organic process. <laughs> organic, not as a uh, byword for like yeah. 
um, simple, naturally occurring. But organic is in this is much more complex than a computational process. Yeah, the the splitting of one cell into two cells and the genetic duplication and mutation is substantially more complicated than most things that most computers do. And this happens fuck continuously within the body. Yeah, and it's sort of again, we don't necessarily have answers to that. The whole point we would we wouldn't have the show if we had the answer to it. We'd make one episode and death sentence yeah. would be done. The the entirety of it. <laughs> like Eden and I wouldn't be continuing to write about about metal, about politics, about philosophy if these were settled. Hell, this is why things like feminist studies, uh, like race studies, um, gender studies, uh, I already said that, um, like sexuality, queer studies, this is why those are present tense words. Like, like quite literally, because we do not have these answers yet. And the academy, the academy, for all its faults, exists in part as a tacit acknowledgement from humanity <laughs> that, like, we're not there yet. We, I agree 100%. Unfortunately, the, the structural and post-structural elements of the problem indicate we probably are going to have to do this forever. Yep. I mean, that's the whole idea of dialectics as a process, right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> that's not, not something which eventually ends. Okay, so... um. Let's do, because we're two people, let's do four recommendations for Dying Earth um, stories to read if people want to follow up on this and read it. We'll do one each. And I'll start with M. John Harrison's Viriconium, which I already mentioned here, and I've spoken about M. John Harrison, well, we've spoken about M. John Harrison on the cast. Um, and this guy has to be one of the most <clears throat> underrated science fiction authors ever. Everything he writes is... Very, very interesting and very, very weird. And he wrote three novellas in the Viriconium setting. So think about this like future, far future, but more industrial and decaying sort of setting alongside magic. And you have <clears throat> Viriconium. We might have to do like a full episode on, on Viriconium at some point, but for now, that's my recommendation. My first one. Hmm. I'm trying to think of uh, works that would actually know. I have one. Um, Battle Angel Alita. <laughs> That's a good choice, yeah. I think about it a lot, um, like like quite a lot, as both like a literary and an aesthetic work. Um, it's uh, a manga which is collected now in, let me count, um, five volumes for the complete series, and then there's one for a couple side stuff. There's been extensions of it, um, and those are good, but not, necessary um the the main one is is all that you need obviously you can find it illegal online if you really want to get it for free um a guy has certainly enough money that that's fine <laughs> but yeah um yeah it's just this substantially more um internally rich work obviously it's not like mind-blowingly complex it's not like a, a genius work of like philosophy but it is speckled with um quite a bit more thoughtfulness around uh, a dying earth. It's more specifically like science fiction-y dying earth setting um, that's still built around. Um, it's quite more cocky in, in certain ways. Uh, 
Also, it's riddled with uh, heavy metal references. Like there's there's references to like Liege Lord and Sepultura and shit in it, which I which I did not know when I sat down to read it, and I was like, "What yeah. the fuck? This rules." <laughs> <laughs> All right, your next one. Cool. So my next one is going to be Michael Moorcock's The Dancers at the End of Time. So leave it to Moorcock to fucking <laughs> end everything by asking, what if Dying Earth met um, Fin the Circle, the end of the century writing, which is a form of literature that arose, you guessed it, at the end of the 19th century. Um, and and uh, um, would you guess based on the language of that phrase that most of them were French? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a wild guess! Um, <laughs> which was all about decadence and the dying of of the earth and proper culture and all that stuff. So it begins with an alien heat, which is the name of the story, um, but it has many short stories, including one with Elric, um, Elric at the end of time. Um, the premise is: What if at the end of time, and it's like the end of the universe? the people left on planet Earth had infinite energy. They have these machines that they don't know how to work, of course, but it gives them infinite energy. So their decadence is manifested in, you know, they can reshape the planet. They can create elaborate disguises for each other. They can, you know, with a flick of a finger, they can change everything about anything to do with the reality. Um, how would their society look like? And it's just this world of inventiveness and there's like this, it opens with a discussion about virtue, right? Um, <laughs> between Jeric Cornelian, which is obviously Jerry Cornelius, you know how Moorcock likes his Jerry's, um, and his mother, the Iron Orchid. And they, they talk about virtue. Later, he has sex with his mother, which, you know, we love on, on the podcast. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's just, it, it, it's just wild. It's really, really wild. You don't have to know any of the other internal, eternal champion stuff. Because it exists at this like really weird point at the end of time of, of the setting, and it's just a wild ride. Um, it's really really inventive and, and weird. And my last one will be one that we've actually covered on covered on the series before, but I want to to highlight again because it's it's one that I think is fucking superb and unfortunately under discussed. Um, and that's uh, let me go grab the uh, the book. I want to get the author name right. What mystery, listener? Actually, oh, by, oh, by the way, uh, Battle Angel Lido is by uh, Yukita Kishiro. Um, mm -hmm. I did, forgot to say the uh, uh, the author. Um, it's Sisyphean by uh, Denpau Torishima. Wait, 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 wait. Are you are you are you saying that Sisyphean is Dying Elf? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Wait, yeah, I'll go there. Mind, wait, I need to like gather up the pieces of my mind. Wow. First of all, Sisyphean is fucking, oh my God. Dimpao Torishima, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the name of the author. Uh, Eden pitched an episode uh, about it to me and I had to break the news to him that me and Eden already covered it and got like pre-release copies and stuff because... You, you and Gareth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just so fucking far up our our alley. Like and then the when Eden reached out to me about the book I was like and this is exactly why you had to be co-host. Like this is the, the <laughs> fact that that was like yo we have to do this be like 
you're so correct that we already did. Like, <laughs> we're vibing, bro. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's very much a. So one of the th- one of the elements we brought up about dying Earth is some elements of its like um. Uh, its politics is often a question mark or more uh like implicit, or it'll deal with things like, um you know, kingdoms, uh, slavery, uh, like abstract anarchistic concepts and they're not abstract, but like it's more abstract than a specific, um, political ideology. Sisyphean turns that on its head a bit by making it very specifically a capitalist dying earth. Like what if the earth was dying and everything about Vancey and dying earths still basically held true, but corporations still existed and the, domination of the capital class against the proletariat uh still persisted as like you know millions of years have gone by and humanity's hyper evolved into weird what look like cancer things um but we still have literally corporate middle managers and bosses and you know visits from the home office and it's the same level of wildly imaginative but uh also insanely heartbreaking on account of it it posits what if capitalism just doesn't die and yeah. we already have work about capitalism as a, a kind of necrostate or the, the kind of like necromantic work of dead capital that you know you get from like object oriented ontology what if that necromantic impulse oh also by the way that's mirrored a little bit in book of the new sun where he wakes up in a uh, he wakes up in his own crypt whatever yep. um that's enough book of the new sun <laughs> I'm lying. Um, <laughs> but it's what if the necrostate necroticizes again and again and again and again and again to the point yeah. where you have like a power tower of uh, nec- uh like necropolitics. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a it's wild. It's just it's a wild book. Fucking superb book, great politics and insanely inventive, like just <laughs> like Okay, so th- those are our recommendations. We could, of course, um, go on, but I think that brings it pretty much to a close. So let's do music. Um, I'm going to play for you this time a track by a band called Duel, just like the Duel with uh, pistols. And I thought that for the Dying Elf, you know, nothing but heavy metal would suffice. Um, so heavy metal I bring to you today. These guys released a bunch of albums, including the pretty good Valley of Shadows in May of 2019. But the that was excellent, a solid record. Yeah, but the excellent Incarne Persona in October 2021. It took me a while to get to this one, which is why I'm only plugging it now. It's always been kind of like in my backlog and I never got around to it. But then I did, and it rules. So think about early Baroness, right? So heavy metal with these psychedelic stoner elements to it, but those don't prevent it from being very direct and very energetic and just very passionate, right? So, you know, sick heavy metal riffs, big solos, but the vocals are like psychedelic-y, stonery, you know, drowning in that like honey and smoke drawl that those genres do really well. And you get incarnate persona i'm going to play for you the opening track children of the fire very aptly named for uh, uh, an episode about the dying sun 
and I hope you enjoy it. Next time, we're going to be expanding this discussion into the Soulsborne um, universe or mythos, if you'd like. And we'll discuss, in general, Soulsborne games, but also a lot of Vancey and stuff that's in them that people, I think, are not picking up on as much as they should. Um, and we'll have Garathon. It will be our first triple host um, episode, and it's going to be fantastic. Until then, here is Duel with Children of the Fire. Second-born of the princes of Vida, and as Grand Inquisitor, here condemn you. Condemn.